So as we come to the end, towards the end of our series on Revelation, it's good to clarify, especially after a passage like last week on the millennium, a passage that can be kind of controversial and debated, it's, I think it's good for us to clarify that even as we've been going through the book and Dan and I have been providing the interpretation that we have, um, that as a church, um, we, we don't hold all these sort of positions or certain fundamentals that we would hold as essential about the end times. But there are a lot of interpretative things in a book like this or on the millennium that we want to say, yes, we have our opinions on those, but those are of more minor significance. And even as a church, um, within our membership, we allow people to hold to pretty much the full gamut of orthodox evangelical views. Um, as a church, we are, when it comes to what we teach and what our elders are required to hold to, we might narrow it a little bit. Um, one view in particular, we would, we would kind of say that's, that's not what we hold to and our elders wouldn't be able to hold to that, which would be more of a dispensational premillennialism, if you've heard of that. Uh, but even within that, our elders can still hold to the full range of, of postmillennialism, premillennialism, amillennialism. If you're familiar with those terms, you listen to the podcast. And so we just want to emphasize that as we come to the end of a book like this. Um, even as uh, we've been preaching through a book like this, and the way we've been approaching the book naturally leads to an amillennial interpretation, as I presented last week. We, this would be Dan in my view, obviously, but we also want to just recognize that there are other ways people approach the book of Revelation. We're convinced of this interpretation, and hopefully you find that compelling as well. But even then, we understand there are other Orthodox believers who disagree on these things. So I just want to say that at the outset, as we come to the close, and even as we dealt with probably the most controversial passage in the book last week. I wonder if um, some of you have had the experience, though, where you have um, gone through something where you've thought to yourself, if it hadn't been for X, I would have never, never would have made it. I would have never pushed through. If it hadn't been for the thought of fill in the blank. If it wasn't for that thought, it, nothing would have kept me going. That was the one thing that kept me going. Some of you began new semesters recently, and maybe that's how you feel, where you look at just the workload you have to do for school, and if it was just that, you'd be like, no way, I don't want to do this. But what keeps you going? The promise of a degree at the end. I got two more years left. I got one more year left, whatever it is. Or maybe for some of us with, with small kids, it's that long trip where maybe you try to do it in the middle of the night and it's just like, man, I just cannot wait until I am tired, but the kids are sleeping, but I'm going to do this. It's, it's not fun, but we're going to do this because we're eventually going to get to grandma and grandpa's house, right? Or we have a lot of folks in the church who have done fostering or are in the middle of foster parenting, and that's a difficult process oftentimes from what I understand, but you push through because you, you know what, what, what's at the end. You know what your goal is in that. You know that it's worth it. And Revelation 20, verses 11 to 21, verse 8, functions similarly, where it's providing us a vision to keep us going in the midst of this life. Up until this point, really beginning in chapter 17, the end of the book here, you'll remember we've seen different scenes, different visions of, of different characters throughout the book getting judged. And as, they were, as the main villains were introduced, the order in which they were introduced into the book 
we've seen them kind of get dismissed and judged in the reverse order, okay? So in chapter 17, we saw Babylon, or the prostitute, get judged. 17 to 18, and even in a little bit into 19. Then in chapter 19, 11 to 21, we saw the two beasts get judged when Jesus returns on the white horse with a sword out of his mouth. We saw in chapter 20 last week that now the dragon, Satan, was judged at the end of the millennium. And now today, in this passage, we get another one of those scenes, but now it's no longer one of those key villains, but it's humanity's turn to get judged. And as in most of those cases, the beasts and the dragon and now humanity here, you'll notice each of them all have their outcome being the lake of fire. So they're all pictures, we might say, of the same judgment, like that replay analogy we've been using. The same judgment, but kind of from a different angle. Here we have humanity's turn, and unbelieving humanity, they, as, as just like the beast and just like the dragon, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. And like some of those previous pictures, um, blended in and accompanying the picture of judgment of the enemies of God comes also the salvation of his people. That we get a combined image of judgment for those who don't trust in the Son, but salvation for those who do. In this case, the salvation of a new creation. And so just some overview of the passage and how it's kind of organized. First of all, we get two and I saw statements, or then I saw in the ESV. In verse 11, then I saw, verse 11 there, and then we get a, we get a scene of the judgment, verses 11 through 15. And then in 21, verse 1, we get another then I saw statement. And now we get a picture of a new creation in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21. So we have two pictures, judgment and new creation. Then I saw, then I saw. And then lastly, in verses 5 through 8, we're going to see God himself, a voice from the throne, saying three things. And he said, and he said, and he said. You'll notice that in verses 5 through 6. God says three things, and he wants to assure us of what he, we just saw in those first two visions of judgment and salvation, where the passage then closes by reminding us of those two realities, that God wants to assure us of the things we just saw. And I said, and God said three times, either of judgment or new creation. And so as we see that structure, you can summarize the passage this way. This is what the passage is communicating to us. Believer, be assured Whereas the unbeliever's portion will be the second death, God's people will inherit the second creation. God himself says so. And he said, Be assured, whereas the unbeliever's portion will be the second death, the believer's portion, well, they will inherit the second creation. God himself tells us so. We get this uh, language in verse 7, beginning in verse 7 in chapter 21, that the one who conquers is going to have this heritage. He and I will be his God and he will be my son. This idea of sonship here is the idea of one who receives this inheritance. Sons receive an inheritance. Well, notice, who is the one who's going to be the son who's going to receive this inheritance of a new creation? It's the one who conquers. We've seen that language before, right? We remember that? 
in the opening letters to the churches, every single letter, every message to those seven churches ends with, to the one who conquers will be given some sort of promise, some sort of promise of salvation. And now we're seeing those brought to fulfillment here. Well, this passage is picking up on that. You want to have your place in the new creation? That belongs to those who conquer. This passage, in other words, is telling us that it wants to function to produce that sort of patient endurance, that conquering, amidst all the pressures and temptations that those churches would have gone through. That he's, he's speaking this message to those seven churches, and he talks about the pressures they face from the beast. Maybe pressures of persecution or, or temptation to go after false ideology of the false prophet or the lusts of, the, of Babylon and the harlot. This is a vision that's meant to empower you to patiently endure, to conquer. And so to us, we face our own beasts today. We face our own pressures coming in from, from society or, or ideologies that would kind of steer us away and cause us to compromise or, or the lusts of the world, our own Babylon. And this message wants to come in and it wants to empower us to conquer by locking our, our eyes on the vision of a final judgment and a final new creation. As, as, as kind of that, that illustration that if it hadn't been for the thought of blank, I would have never kept on going. This is the blank. This is where our eyes are to be focused. It's this vision here that keeps us going. And so first of all, let's look at the scene of judgment, the scene of second death. Okay, starting in chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw, here's the first vision that he sees, I saw a great white throne, God's throne in other words, and him who is seated on it. From his presence, from God's presence, earth and the sky fled away and there was no place found for them. This reminds us of like the sixth seal and the sixth bowl or at the kind of the remember the six is is the culmination of history right before the, the the kingdom fully arrives and in the sixth seal and the sixth bowl we also had this language of creation just like dissipating and just like running away from the arrival of god it, it speaks to just god's terrifying presence that even creation is just like fleeing away from him when he comes and arrives and yet you'll notice in verse 12 that humanity the dead who are resurrected are now going to stand before. They're going to be forced to stand in the judgment of this very God that he the heavens and the earth just ran away from. So the, the creation runs away, but now I saw the dead, great and small. They have to stand before that throne. They're going to be judged by this terrifyingly holy God. And books were opened. And these books... Uh, alluding to Daniel, um, this is sort of the, this idea of God as if he, it's an image of God having a record of all you've done. They're going to be judged according to their works, it will say. And so these books are like the record of your life by which you're going to be judged. Now there's this other book that was opened, which is the book of life. And guess what? The dead here, they're judged by what was written in those books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, these pictures of kind of the place of the dead. So when you die, you're, you're, you go to death and Hades. Some translations uh, put this as the grave. It, 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 it gives up the dead. The dead are raised to life in the general resurrection at the end, and all who are in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
And so, again, this is the very end of history when Christ comes again. And the Bible tells us that all people will be raised. The just, the righteous, the saved will be, will be raised for everlasting life. And the unjust will be resurrected to everlasting torment. And they're judged here according to their works, it says. Verse 14 and 15. Then death and Hades, they were thrown into the lake of fire. This is their sentence. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, so to all the dead, uh, the de death and Hades, ex with the exception of those whose name is in the book of life, the book, the roster of those who are recorded to inherit eternal life, everyone else is thrown into this lake of fire, this symbolism of clearly symbolic. Lakes are water. They're not fire, right? But whatever it is, the reality is even worse than that symbol. It's this place of torment. He calls it the second death. It's the eternal judgment. Now, what do we make of this whole idea of judgment according to works? Well, let's just be clear. This is not teaching that salvation is ultimately by works. Okay, Because later on in the passage that Matt read for us, we already saw that those who inherit the new creation, they drink from the water of life without payment. You can't pay for this life. You can't pay for your entrance into the book of life, in other words. Elsewhere, that book of life in the, in the book of Revelation is described as the book of the Lamb who was slain. You get your name in the book, not because of anything you've done, but because the Lamb was slain for you. And this was determined before the foundation of the world, it says. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. It's by God's gracious election, accomplished in the atonement of Christ, that anyone enters into that book. Nonetheless, even if this idea of a judgment that accords with our work includes the believers here, that's not necessarily problematic because although believers are saved by grace, that same grace necessarily evidences in a transformed life. That the Bible teaches that those who are saved by grace are also cap captivated by that grace and are changed by it. And elsewhere we see that the New Testament does speak of believers being judged according to their works at the final judgment by that evidence of, their, of the fruit of their lives. And thus, it, it makes total sense that we can be judged in accordance to our work, according to our works, in agreement with our works, our works testifying to our status as those who are saved, even if our salvation is not based on our works. The text doesn't say that our salvation is based on our works or earned by our works, but in accordance with our works. And this fits even with 21.8, where at the very end when he's summarizing the two uh, the two groups of people, those who conquer in verse 7, but then on the other hand, he talks about those who are cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That description is not saying that anyone who's ever committed those things, like anyone who's ever lied, or anyone who's ever committed sexual immorality, or etc., it's saying those who are characterized by those things. As 1 Corinthians 6 says, 1 Corinthians 6 gives a similar list of these vices, these different sins, and Paul can say, and such were some of you. In other words, believers, we're the, we're the, we're the sort of people that are saved out of those lifestyles. And so it's, he's talking about what characterizes you. 
But a passage like this, it's meant to give a warning. First of all, to the unbeliever, obviously, the warning is that's your destiny apart from Christ. If any of us were to be judged based on our works, we're going to be damned. That's what we deserve, to stand before the God of the universe that heaven and earth flees from, apart from the redemption of Christ, apart from Christ bearing my sin for me, I'm going to bear that sin before God's judgment, and I deserve the lake of fire. So it's a warning to the unbeliever, to the person who's here today who's not yet a believer in Christ, to, to cling to Christ, to put your faith in Christ. But also to the believer, as he writes this message to seven churches, it's meant to encourage us to keep enduring. It's meant to empower us for patient endurance. As chapter 18 said, talking about the destruction of Babylon, it said, come out of Babylon, my people, lest you take part in her sins and lest you then share in her plagues. You're going to partake in her sins. You're going you're to compromise. Show yourself to not actually have been a genuine believer, but really to be a citizen of Babylon, not a citizen of the New Jerusalem. Not only, if you're going to share with her sins, you're also going to share with her plagues. And so it's a warning to us believers to continue on the right path. But not only do we get a picture of the second death then, but we also, starting in 21.1, get a picture of the second creation. And so this is the alternate. We saw those who are judged according to their, to their wrong deeds. But then what about those who are recorded in the book of life? Those who are recorded there, destined for eternal life. Well, in this paragraph, we get to see three new things that God is going to do. First, we are going to see a new creation. Then we are going to see a new Jerusalem and thirdly, we are going to see a new temple. And we'll look at all three of those. A new creation, a new Jerusalem, and a new temple. And actually, in the section that follows this, in 21.9 through 22, I believe it's verse 5. Yep, verse 5. The section, Dan's going to uh, preach that section. That is going to be an expansion on these three things. The three things that, that that larger section deals with is a new city, the new Jerusalem, um, the, the new temple, and then finally a new creation or a new garden of Eden. And so that section is going to blow up and give us an expanded version of what here is said just very, very quickly. New creation, new Jerusalem, new temple. And so let's just, I just want to take a step back though to make sure we're all on the same page as we think about um, uh, what's sometimes called eschatology or our understanding of the end times. Let's make sure we all have kind of some of the key pieces in place, okay? Because sometimes there's some misunderstanding on these things that I think would cause us to be tripped up by a passage like this. Okay, so first of all, our ultimate destiny, where history is going, is not heaven, we're not going to live in heaven forever, but a new creation. Okay, oftentimes people talk that way, like the end goal is we believe in Jesus so we can go to heaven when we die. That's just what's called the intermediate state. That's just the temporary place of believers right now before the very end when we will dwell on a new creation for all eternity, a new heaven and a new earth. The other thing, too, is the, goal, the final hope that we have, the ultimate full realization of our salvation, is actually to be raised again, to be resurrected. That when Jesus comes again, the, the, he's going to resurrect our bodies. And so when a believer dies now, they, their body is dead, their body is in the ground, but in a disembodied way, they are in the presence of Christ. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is that Christ is going to come again. He's going to raise us from the dead. 
And then finally, what we see here as well, for the non-believer, if the believer goes into the presence of Christ, the non-believer enters into a torment, some sort of torment now when they die. We see that in the parable of Lazarus, for example. Um, but there's eventually going to come a day where the final judgment is issued. That's future. That's the language of lake of fire. The lake of fire is language used for the future, that, that, that final state of judgment. And hell, the language of hell, typically in the Bible, seems to also be referring specifically to that future judgment, even though we oftentimes speak of hell as like something someone would enter into right now. So the Bible has that future orientation to the eternal condition of things, new creation, resurrection, final judgment, lake of fire, okay? So with that bearing in mind, let's look at those three things. New creation first. We see in verse 1, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is drawing on Isaiah, where Isaiah first depicted this. For that first heaven and the first earth, the one we're in right now, at that point it will have passed away, and the sea is no more. Remember, the sea is this, it's this image in the Hebrew mind of a place of chaos. And even in this book, we saw that the beast rose from the sea. Well, the sea is no more. Not that there's literally going to be no sea in the new creation, but as a symbol that this is the place where the beast rose out of, there's no more threat of that sort of stuff anymore. It's gone. The first, the former things have passed away. And that same language of the first heavens and the first earth having passed away is used in verse 4 to kind of create a sandwich. So if you'll get verse 4 at the very end, it says in the ESB, the former things have passed away. The word former there is literally first. So at the very beginning in verse 1 and then at verse 4, we have two statements that the first things, the former things, the, the this order things right now, they will have passed away, same language. And so we get, an, we get another description of the new creation than I would argue in verse 4, where he says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the first things, the former things, have passed away. I was... Um, sitting in bed and looking at the news on, I think it was on my phone or my iPad or something like that. And if you know Anne, Anne is like really sensitive to like um, the news stories and such. Uh, she's just incredibly empathetic. And so she, like she, I have to be careful like if I'm watching the news or reading the news or something, like if she sees it, it will really negatively affect her. And so she's, she could tell I was reading a story that was negative and she was like, keep that away from me, I don't want to see it. And it just caused me to think, um, I mean, you probably thought this as well, but just it hit me afresh in that moment. This story was just super sad. Um, just, we live in an incredibly sad world. Um, it's easy to get really used to those sort of news stories, but I mean, when you think about it, you think about stories, you think about what's happening in Afghanistan right now. Um, you can just imagine the sort of stuff. I mean, these are human beings, fellow human beings that are going through just absolute junk. 9-11 um, Memorial was yesterday. Just the tragedy of people's lives who are lost, people's moms and dads who grow up without a parent. Um, I mean, we could go on, right? Maybe things in your own life. This world is full of just absolute tragedy. And even in America, we've had, relatively speaking, um, compared to most of history, things have been pretty decent. Like, we haven't, in my life, you know, we haven't experienced war on our own land and the sort of like famines and things that people oftentimes experience in life. 
In a passage like this, though, it says all those sad things, all those horrible things that are kind of overwhelming if you really let yourself to start thinking about it. Um, it's all going to be gone. It's, there's no more of that anymore. It's all going to be done away with. All the tears are going to be wiped. Death is no longer going to happen. It's going to be done away with. We'll be raised never to die again. There's going to be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All the, first, all the things of this first order, this first creation are done. Maybe there's a time in your life where you thought to yourself, you knew there was going to be some sort of change in your life, and you're thinking, kind of getting mentally ready for that. You think, wow, when that comes, this is, things are going to be a lot different. It's going to be, it's going to be new. Okay, I'm not talking about just minor changes like getting a new pair of glasses or buying a new car or something like that. I'm talking about major life changes, like maybe um, you moved across the country or maybe you got a diagnosis of some illness, some serious illness, or maybe you're in an accident and now you can't do things that you did before. Or maybe when you're getting married and people often talk about, well, it's going to be, it's going to be a big change, you know, or having kids for the first time. The death of a loved one, uh, a significant career change. Think of these big changes. We start to think, man, that is going to be that is going to have like ripple effects across my whole life. My life is going to be completely different once that happens. Now multiply that sort of change beyond what you can even imagine, and that's the newness that we're talking about here in the new creation. We're not just talking about degrees of change from like one job to another or living as a single person to living as a married person, or without kids to with kids. We're talking about a completely new creation, where there are literally things that exist in this creation that won't even exist anymore. The evil and the sadness, the pain, the mourning, it's all going to be gone. It's remarkable. The second thing that he promises is a new, a new Jerusalem. Not only a new creation, but a new Jerusalem. We see in verse 2, It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Bible starts with a creation, and it ends from Genesis. It ends now in Revelation with a new creation. Likewise, the Bible starts with a garden, an undeveloped garden, where creation is, humanity is told to subdue it. And now it ends with a developed city, that plan coming to full fruition. One of the questions in this passage, this verse, is, you know, is this picture of a new Jerusalem, is this, a, is this meant to be a promise about an actual place, a city, or is it meant to be more like a picture of a people? Because it says that this new Jerusalem will be like a bride. And I would argue that the answer is actually both. Um, we talk this way, right? When we talk about the city of Milwaukee, we can talk about the city of Milwaukee as like a region. It has these borders. It has these institutions, this sort of government, these buildings. We can speak of it as a city. But also we can say, like, the city of Milwaukee was was incredibly excited when the Bucks won. And there we're talking about the people. And so I think the Bible, and specifically in Revelation, when it uses this language of New Jerusalem, it means it in both senses. it's, It's signaling our final home, the new creation. But also as citizens, we ourselves are this city which is how the New Testament uses the New Jerusalem elsewhere. Even in the book, it talked about how the dragon was coming to attack the New Jerusalem, the people, that is. And so we are the New Jerusalem. We get a picture of a, of a tale of two cities in Revelation, a contrast between Babylon and then the New Jerusalem, who is also the prostitute 
versus the bride. And hear the promise then of this new Jerusalem. Because right now, I don't know if you feel like I do, but right now it feels like the church is very much acting a good deal like her old whoring self that she was saved from. Like, look around at the church today, and we are in a mess. We we're acting like our old selves in many ways. We're still sinful. We're messed up. But there's coming a day, according to this book, that the church is going to be made totally pure. She's going to be like a bride prepared for Christ. She's going to come down from heaven, having her origin from heaven itself, created and shaped by God. Pure, no longer, not just in our status before God, but now pure in our very nature before him. Thirdly, we see that we are promised a new temple. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, literally the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. He will tabernacle with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So although it doesn't use the language of explicitly temple here, I think that's the idea. God tabernacling, his tent dwelling, which was later replaced by the temple, God is dwelling among his people. And notice, it's not just that God is going to tabernacle on earth, but he's going to dwell, it specifically says, he's going to dwell with humanity. The very God that creation flees from, the very, the very God that creation is judged and thrown into the lake of fire, this terrifyingly holy God is dwelling with his people. This is going to anticipate the next section where we see that the whole creation is actually depicted as a temple. In, in 21 verse 22, John is, we, we have, we've seen John say it throughout the book, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. And then you get to 21 verse 22 and he says, and I saw no temple. Let me tell you something I didn't see in the new creation. I didn't see a temple. Why? Because the whole thing is portrayed as the temple. Everywhere we will experience the presence of God. This is the fulfillment of the covenant formula that I will be their God and they will be my people. This phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament to anticipate and really to summarize what God intended for his people since the very garden of Eden. That we will experience God's presence, the very fullness of everything God intended that covenant relationship to be, and we will commune with him. And this is, this is an amazing promise. This one is actually set off, we notice, in text group, whereas the new creation in the new Jerusalem, we get this statement, and I saw. With the new temple, it's, and I heard a loud voice. This one is set apart. There's something really special going on here. And I think sometimes people can talk about the, 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 the hope that we have before us and think, wow, oftentimes talking about it like heaven, but this idea of like, wow, isn't heaven going to be boring someday? We're just going to sit there and worship God. And like, I hope there's things like uh, softball or roller coasters or whatever. And it's like, listen, we, we, we end up, when we think that way, I'm not making a comment that those things aren't going to be there, but when we think that way, it's because we think, hey, you know, Maybe worshiping God, maybe experiencing God, that sounds kind of boring. Because we are so attuned with the gifts God has given us, good gifts, good things, that we then replace, we, we kind of go after the gift instead of seeing the goodness of the giver. If all these good things were given to us by God, just imagine how good he himself is. Think about the attributes of God, the one who is the source of all beauty, the source of all truth. Someone of, of infinite goodness, 
of, 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 of eternal triune love within, within his own being, communicating that love to us as well. And we're going to be able to dwell with that God. All the other stuff is just bonus, whatever else is going on at that point. We're going to dwell with God himself, the source of eternal joy. In the Lord of the Rings, there's a scene where Pippin, uh, they're traveling somewhere, and Pippin stops to eat, and Aragorn says, what are you, what are you doing? We just, had, we just had breakfast. We've got to keep going. And Pippin says, well, yes, we've had one breakfast, but what about second breakfast? And then Aragorn kind of looks all puzzled and looks like he's going to keep going. Mary, the other hobbit, says, uh, Pippin, I don't think he knows about second breakfast. So you know hobbits, they have all these meals. And I wonder if some of us have a similar reaction when it comes to, as we live our lives, when it comes to the new creation. Well, I know about first creation, but what about second creation? That there's a danger where even if we can check this off in our theology, we're functionally, we're not living with a view that we really do believe in a second creation. That there is a new creation coming. Yes, we've had one creation, yes, but ah, what about second creation? A passage like this wants to motivate us to live in light of that second creation. Be assured, whereas the unbeliever's portion will be the second death, the people of God will inherit a second creation. God himself has said so. Look now with me at verses 5 and following. We get these three statements where God says, where it's three things that God says. And he said, and these are kind of unique moments in the book. Occasionally we get these moments where most of the book of Revelation, we're seeing visions. And every once in a while we kind of get pulled back for a sidebar conversation. Hey, John, write this down. Or hey, God says this. And it's meant to draw our attention in to see, wow, something important is happening. God is actually entering in the middle of the vision to tell us something. And he says three things. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, or and he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He says, Look me in the eyes. Like, get this. This is going to happen. So not just, not just we see the visions, and it's meant to be encouraged by the visions, but now God enters in and he says, Look at me. I am telling you, this is going to happen. Behold, I'm going to make it all new. These words, take them to the bank. God himself says them. Write it down. It's trustworthy. It's true. You can count on it. You can live your life on it. He says, I am the alpha. Lastly, he says, I, it is done. Consider it Final, consider it fulfilled. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the, the, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So it's like I am the A to the Z. I'm the one who created this stuff. I'm the one, I'm the origin of all these things. And therefore, I'm not just the one who created it all. I'm the one who preserves it all, sustains it all. I'm the one who's directing history all the way to Z, the very climax of history. I order these things. I can guarantee their end. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. And so the one who conquers, you're going to get this heritage. Live as a conqueror. Take these things to the bank. Now, other people's promises to us oftentimes prove 
undependable. You know, sometimes you're, someone promises you something and they, they're just lying. So they're speaking deceitfully. Or other times, even when they intend to fulfill those, they're just not dependable. They just, they make a mistake or they have failed intentions. But here in this passage, God himself is giving us his word, and it's none other than God himself who is assuring us of these things. And so our, our, the question that we leave with a text like this, then, our, 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 as we think about what this means for us in our life, is, is asking that question, how do we respond to these words today? When it says that God said, God said, God said, what does it look like for me to believe that? What's, what, is my, what does my life show is my response to those words? Believing them will cause me to patiently endure. It will, it will energize a conquering. And so when we're tempted by the, the, the villains of this book, when we're tempted by the beast that puts, puts pressure on us, if persecution would arise in different degrees or forms, or when we're, when we're bombarded by the, the false prophet and the different ideologies of, of this world or the lusts of Babylon, the prostitute, what happens? When all those voices are pounding in at us, we hear God's voice above all of those. And I said, behold, I am making all things new. God's voice shouts louder than the rest. His voice should be reverberating in our ears, drowning out the noise of this world. That we live for eternal things, not this world. That that we're warned of the final judgment, that there's a warning for those who are unfaithful and those who are unbelieving. Where we're encouraged that justice is eventually coming, that evil will eventually be judged. We have hope in the midst of dark times and suffering because all those things will eventually be done away with. That otherwise, when we are, where we become cynical about Christianity, where we become cynical about the, the, the future, it would cause us to kind of be paralyzed in despair or, or we give up. We have real hope to keep going. And so we have hope to endure. That if it wasn't for the thought of blank, I would have never kept going. And this is a vision that's meant to fulfill that void and say, this is our hope. This is what we look to. And one of the greatest truths of a passage like this is that our participation in this new creation is not by anything that we have done. But it's because our names are written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That as verse 6 says, it says, to the thirsty thirst. Have you ever been like, I remember when I was in high school after practicing soccer and you're running and running and running, water never tasted so good. You're just like, man, I would give anything for water right now. That's the picture here of the person who needs salvation. We are thirsting for salvation. We need it. We're desperate for salvation. We feel our desperation. I'm going to give that person who's thirsty, I'm going to give them water. The water that is life, eternal life without any payment. You don't have to pay for this. It's free. As 22.17 says, And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And the reason it's free is because it's based on the death and resurrection of Christ. He is the lamb who is slain so that our names can be written in the book of life. And if it's by his death and resurrection, it means it's not by anything that we can do. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. We're saved despite what we, what we actually deserve. We're given what we don't deserve. And so we receive the salvation by trusting in Christ alone. And the Lord's Supper gives us a similar picture as well, right? 
Uh, Ann and I went out to eat the other day, and we don't do this a whole lot, go out to like a, a fancier restaurant, because it costs money, right? Um, going out to a fancier restaurant can be cost prohibited, pro prohibitive, if that's the right word. Drew will correct me later. Um, cost prohibitive, right? And you kind of feel, if you're like me, you kind of feel like I enjoy eating nice food, but then I kind of feel bad in the moment because you're like, this is kind of expensive. And so like Dan, I know Dan is like that, where he's like, I will enjoy eating the food if it, tastes, or if it costs less because I know I paid less for it, right? So I can kind of get that. So here's the thing with the Lord's Supper. If, 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 if there are meals out there that are cost prohibitive because they're so expensive and maybe you, you just can't even afford it in your budget, the Lord's Supper says if you want to try to pay for it, you can't have it. It's free by definition. It's a supper that celebrates that Jesus made the payment. He made the payment. He died on the cross for our sins. And that's what the Lord's Supper symbolizes. Is the, the bread and the juice symbolize his body and his blood given over for us in death. death. It's a pictured promise of the gospel and it is the lord's supper he's the host and he's inviting all those who trust in him to come it's free come and partake in the gospel this morning and so as believers we come forward and we're assured of our faith that god has given us this symbol to assure us and build up and nourish our faith as we partake of the gospel not only through the preaching of the gospel but then by the gospel made visible in the lord's supper